Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this evening, yet another Monday for us to gather as a community, to dive into your word. We know that you are the word made flesh. And so every time we read scripture, every time we enter the word, we are encountering you. And so we want to give you, Lord, the opportunity to speak to us and ask that you inspire within us, give us the ability to listen to receive, to be open to whatever you you have to challenge us with tonight, whatever you have to comfort us with tonight, whatever answers you have for the questions and the curiosities, the seeking that is constantly at work in our hearts. So bless our reading of the word tonight, illuminate our conversation, our discussion, our questions, and help us to each encounter you in a particular way, and bless us each in the ways that we most need it. We lay this time at your feet. We ask that you remove any worries, anxieties, doubts, fears, nervousness, discomfort from our bodies and our minds and allow us to be fully focused on you and the movement of your Holy Spirit. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we are in Luke chapter 14, starting verse 25. Luke 14, 25. We're going to read through verse 33. That is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. So we're picking up a little bit after the gospel from this past uh, week. You'll remember that it is the gospel about the wedding uh, or the feast where uh, you shouldn't sit higher at the table. You should sit lower at the table so you're not embarrassed. You should be humbled and all of that. Uh, And so this continues on a similar line, but it goes back to a few weeks ago. Uh, when Jesus was talking about that he came to bring division. There's some of that similar type of language in today's gospel as well. So it will be probably just as challenging as that one was. So uh, we're going to read chapter 14 of Luke, verses 25 through 33, twice through. First time through, just get a sense for what is being said. So this is Jesus continuing on his way to Jerusalem. Great crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned and addressed them. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, wishing to construct a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there is enough for its completion. Otherwise, after laying the foundation and finding himself unable to finish the work, the onlookers should laugh at him and say, this one began to build but did not have the resources to finish. Or what king marching into battle would not first sit down and decide whether with 10,000 troops He can successfully oppose another king advancing upon him with 20,000 troops. But if not, while he is still far away, he will send a delegation to ask for peace terms. In the same way, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this a second time through, another challenging word from Jesus. And as we read through this another time, try and remove from your mind now anything but the words as you hear them. And as those words, uh, as you hear them, let them wash over you, kind of focus on each one. And if something sparks a thought, a memory, something out of nowhere in your mind, take that as a sign that the Lord is trying to speak to you through that particular word or phrase and begin to just reflect on that. Why this? What is God trying to say to me through this? Why is this 
where uh, I'm being led or what is being what I'm being reminded of. So second and final time through Luke 14, 25 through 33. Great crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and addressed them. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Which of you, oh, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple? Which of you wishing to construct a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there is enough for its completion? Otherwise, after laying the foundation and finding himself unable to finish the work, the onlookers should laugh at him and say, this one began to build but did not have the resources to finish? Or what king, marching into battle, would not first sit down and decide whether with 10,000 troops he can successfully oppose another king advancing upon him with 20,000 troops? But if not, while he is still far away, he will send a delegation to ask for peace terms. In the same way, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions, cannot be my disciple. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've read that twice through, I might just take a few moments to reflect back on that. We're in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Um, reflect back over that, see what things stood out, begin to ask why, continue to uh, let those questions kind of uh, come out of the text and then take some time to share at your tables what stood out to you, what questions you have. If you're watching or listening to this later, be sure to do that in the comments. But for those of us here, take about 10 minutes to do that and then we'll come back together in a larger group. Well, welcome back. I hate to interrupt. Uh, but are there any particular thoughts, questions, reflections, things that stood out to you, things that are confusing or challenging? I'm predicting there are many of those. But. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, how, uh, what, what kind of came to the surface for you in your discussions? Yeah. One thing that we, I think, probably a lot of people struggled with was the word hating. Mm -hmm. And I think we were wondering if something got lost in translation, or mm. if that's the real word Jesus meant, or, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, it says hate wife. I don't know what it says. <laughs> no, um, so the word for hate in Greek that's used here is misai, and it means uh, to be indifferent to or to disregard. And, and again, this doesn't mean that you set them aside and say this has no meaning. What Jesus is calling them to is total commitment. Total commitment, mean, meaning that nothing else in someone's life has more meaning than following Jesus. And otherwise, if it does, that's what we would call an idol. And idols are kind of hard to identify because, you know, we do examinations of conscience all the time we go to confession, right? And it helps reveal, like, where there's sin in your life. But you can Google some of these, but there's something called an examination of idols because they're not always as easy to identify. They are idols are good things that are improperly prioritized above God. They're good things. But they've taken a seat on the throne of our heart where only God can sit, and they've become the priority, and that is when they become problematic. That is when they become idols. And so what Jesus is saying here, you have to be willing to let go, detach from everything, and be willing to lose anything that you have, anyone that you have, for the gospel. Because nothing is more important than what Jesus did for us. And he hasn't done it yet here in this passage, but he shows by the example of his life, he gives absolutely everything, all of himself. He disregards his own family. That doesn't mean that he sees them as negative or he doesn't love them, no. But he puts the mission first. He puts his purpose first. He puts the will of him and his father in union to die on the cross for our sins first. And that is what it means to follow Jesus. It means total commitment, total detachment, total reliance on God in everything. And it's not just, I'm a Christian for an hour on Sunday and maybe an hour on Monday night, but it's in every part of my life, God is first. 
in my marriage, in my friendships, in my relationship, in my home, God is first. And when we have a problem, a struggle, a question, an obstacle, if we're thinking about pursuing a goal or something new in any avenue of our life, the first thing that we should ask is, what does the Lord want? Is this going to lead me closer to him or further away from him? Is this his will or mine? Is this going to keep him seated on the throne of my heart and further entrench him, further fortify him there? Or is this going to risk usurping him from that throne, dethroning him because I'm pursuing money, achievement, popularity, a relationship, pleasure, whatever it might be? And a lot of those things, relationships, money, they're good things. We can use money for good. It's not inherently bad. But it says in, um, I think it's in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, mammon being a representative of possessions and wealth. And so when we pit something or someone against God, we're doing a disservice to both. That's what Jesus is warning against here. So if I have God-like expectations from my job to fulfill me, from my relationship to fulfill me, from my career, from the amount of money in my bank account, whatever, if I think that is going to do it for me, it will never satisfy. I'm putting too much pressure on that thing or on that person to make me happy. And I am not looking to the Lord, who is the only one who can really satisfy all those desires in my heart. So that's, in a nutshell, what that means. It doesn't mean to set aside in a negative way, but it means to deprioritize so God is first. Yeah, Rick. A large crowd was following, so people, I mean, I'm sure it was out of their way yeah. to, to follow him, and yet Jesus has to stop and ask them to do more than just follow mm-hmm. him. And what you're describing, uh, I, I, I mean, I can't help but like visualize you guys on Sunday with your two kids in your juggling act of crying and screaming, and I wonder, yeah. are, you, are you really thinking of God in that moment? Like, mm-hmm. it's in real life. Yeah. It's, it's one thing to say, put God first, but like it seems like God is constantly asking us for more. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think, I wonder, is he, if that's not too meant to beat us down. Yeah. But there's got to be some magic there in the constant strive to do more. Mm-hmm. Because when, it seems like with God, we'll never achieve that. Okay, you're fine. Like, yeah. you know. I think of the rich man, give up all your money. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, it just, it struck me when you were describing that, like, it's easier said than done. Yeah. And here you had this large crowd that was following you, and yet that wasn't enough. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think we can, it can seem more difficult at times when we don't invite God into the messy parts. You know, when we think that following God is like, everything is aligned, And it's when I'm fully focused on him, but I can be focused on my children and invite God into that mess of trying to, you know, wrestle with them and recognize like he's here. Like being faithful to my children is being faithful to God because he entrusted them to me. But it's about kind of a state of mind or a state of my heart in that moment. You know, if I'm like, oh, I need my kids to be quiet because I don't want people looking at us, then my image to other people is what my priority is. But if I'm looking at them like, this is just my job as a dad, you know, like, and this is what God has given me. And it's, and it's a mess sometimes, but it's beautiful and it's good. And I'm just going to be present to this as best I can. There's a difference there. Even though it's maybe not totally focused in that moment, 100% on the Lord, because we just, we're not hermits. You know, we, we, we don't live a life like that. Uh, and I, God knows that. I think the thing that he's really speaking to here is attachment, an attachment that is unhelpful or unholy. But the attachments that we do have, that I have to my wife, to our children, to our friendships, if they're rooted in the Lord, then that attachment is ultimately to him and not to them. And so if I invite God into the mess, and if I don't try and put on this mask that like everything's perfect, I'm super holy, no one look at me, um, unless I'm doing really good and everything's nice and shiny and polished, then look at me, you know, like that, that is false. And that's the kind of thing that I think Jesus is really talking about. But if we just come before God, like, in our mess, like, I just can't help but imagine, like, Jesus just broken on the cross. And, like, that's what he's asking of us. Like, even in that state, when you're, like, you have no money, you've been fighting with your spouse, your kids aren't listening, you have no idea how you're going to get through the next day or week or pay the next bill, 
God can be present there, and he can be on the throne of your heart, and he can fulfill you in that place, even though everything's a mess. And it's, it's that versus, I need to fix this for X reason, because I want to be fulfilled, I want to look better, whatever it is. So it's, it's not a hard line, I think there, it's very dotted and messy, and that's good. You know, I think that shows us that we can be human and there's not like an idea of perfection here or a perfect way to be holy. It's about the perfect one coming into the mess and making it holy. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Rick? They carry the cross line in this one. You know, we were discussing that. We, we all kind of thought that carrying the cross was like a line used after the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Here we see it before the crucifixion. Was yeah. that like a common figure of speech in the, in the Jewish culture not that i'm aware of it's common for jesus because he has these conditions for discipleship like no one can follow me unless they take up their cross uh, deny themselves take up their cross and follow me he says that in matthew mark and in luke and then he says it here in another capacity and i'm not aware of anyone else who said this or it being a common phrase and i think it would have been very shocking for the apostles and his followers to hear this right because we know what the cross is based on our experience as Catholics. Like we, we say, take up your cross, like, oh yeah, take up our sufferings, what God gives us, we know. But to them, the cross was like a perfected form of Roman execution that inflicted the most pain possible that they had perfected over centuries. And that was an example to people as they came into Jerusalem of what you did not want to happen to you. And Jesus is saying, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem where they do all that crucifying, and by the way, take up your cross. And that would have, like, that would have been so bizarre to hear. I was driving on a Highway 133, Laguna Canyon Road, uh, and I was driving, I'm so bad at directions, south, right before you hit the 73. I was coming home, and I'm driving, and on the side of the road, there was a guy, an uh, older gentleman with like a long-brimmed hat, uh, probably in his 60s or 70s, and he was carrying a eight-foot-tall wooden cross on his shoulder, walking down the road. And I almost, like, crashed. I was, like, so, like, shocked by this, like, just to, to see that, you know? And he's just, like, he was just trucking along. He wasn't even, like, it didn't even look like he was tired. He was just walking, dragging this thing down. And I was, like, this, what? I wanted to say, like, what's your story? What are you doing? You know, but I was already, like, so far past him by the time I realized what I saw. And so that, that alone, just that image was very shocking. Now imagine seeing that displayed from you from when you are a very young child as an example of capital punishment to keep the status quo and to warn you if you disobey Rome, if you fall out of line, this is what will happen to you. And in this statement, Jesus is not afraid of that or running from it or warning against it. He is praising and encouraging. This would be like, take up your firing squad, take up your electric chair, take up your lethal injection, and come follow me. What are you talking about? Like, I I don't even know if they would have recognized that as, like, proper grammar. Like, take up your execution? Like, what does that even mean? And it's no wonder, time after time after time, people follow Jesus, and then they start turning away, which is why I think he stops here. And he does so many, he has these little reality checkpoints throughout his ministry when people start to follow him more and he's like by the way this is going to be super tough so if you're not in for the long haul you might as well just go home it's kind of what he does right the first time we read it actually i was imagining the scene in forrest gump when he's been running forever and then he just stops and he turns around and he's like i think i'm gonna go home now and then he just goes in the other way and everyone's like what you know like they're just shocked like that was not the direction they thought this was going to go and there's this probably similar reaction to jesus like that is not what we thought you were going to say you know, we thought we we're like, all right, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to take over. This is going to be great. Like the Messiah is here. And he constantly has this ability to remind them. Like, it's a beautiful thing about Jesus is he doesn't lie to us. He is brutally real and honest with us. And he is completely honest about the cost. And it's simple. He says, I want you to follow me, but I want to be upfront with you. This is what it's going to cost. Just one thing. All of it. All of it. And he doesn't hold it back, and he doesn't try and sugarcoat it. It's like, well, you know, if you just follow me, if you just do your best, you're a good person. No, like, he tells you that it's going to be hard, and it's going to involve suffering, and people aren't going to understand, and people are going to persecute you. But in the end, it will be worth it. It's always worth it. In the end, there will be rewards. In the end, there will be judgment. There will be justice. And we want to be on the right side of that. We want to spend eternal life with our Lord, who gave everything for us. And so why not give everything to him? It's the image of a marriage. That's what a bride and a groom do. 
That's why the image of a bridegroom and, and a bride in Scripture is used uh, of Christ and the church, Ephesians 5. That they give everything that they are, sickness and in health, in good times and bad, for richer and for poorer, I lay down my life for you. That's the image. I can't be holding on. I can't be out there at the altar and be like, I do, but can I call on my ex next week and just see if things might, you know, come back? You know, I just want to, I want a backup plan. No, like, it's, that's it. No attachments. I'm leaving everything else behind and starting this new way of life. It's the same thing with Jesus. Other questions? Or things that stood out to you? Yeah, Matt. Discussed um, was just like a couple of the metaphors and parables about building a tower and just ensuring that you you plan. And one thing that um, Reno actually brought up was um, it talks about um, people mocking people for not finishing something that they've started. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that may just go aligned with like not preparing properly. Um, he actually pointed out maybe it's like just. Kind of saying that the, maybe the preparation is more important, and whether regardless of you finish or not, like people are going to mock us no matter yeah. what. So I think maybe in turn, like we should just focus on the preparation, regardless of what the outcome is. I think that's. I don't. Know, I feel like we we're talking about you know what when when will we ever you know be sufficient you know in God's eyes? It's like we probably never will. Yeah. And as long as we're always preparing and just. You know, it's about the journey and not the destination. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, last night, I had a four-hour conversation with um, some Protestant guys about salvation and the difference between Protestants and Catholics. And it was set up by a young Catholic man who I do spiritual direction for, some of his friends, and he wanted to see what the conversation looked like, like how to do apologetics live. And, yeah, so no pressure. But, um but this idea you say, like, being sufficient. And this is something that I think, like, Protestants and Catholics agree on, but they don't realize they agree on it, is that when we talk about faith and works in the Catholic tradition, when our Protestant brothers and sisters talk about faith alone, by which we are saved, we're both saying similar things. What we're saying is that the cross is sufficient for our salvation. And there is no way you or I can ever pre-baptism, post-baptism, good deeds, no matter what we do, there's no way we can ever be sufficient to earn heaven. We can't. We can't earn it. We can't become suddenly worthy of it at some point. Only thing that makes us worthy is the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. That's why like evangelization, knowing him, responding to him is so important because it's, it's a free gift, but we have to respond to it. We can't just suddenly arrive at it from our own effort, our own intellect, like, it has to be revealed to us, and it's just a gift that you can only respond to. But the difference is where the works come in. And I just stayed the whole time in the book of James, chapter 2, like, faith without works is dead. Did you not know that faith without works is dead? You ignoramus. I love that that word's in the Bible. Like, And it's sassy. I was being sassy. James was being sassy, and it was great. Good times were had by all. Maybe not them, but by me. So, uh, but it's because... In order to respond, just like a relationship, like a marriage, it's not just about that contractual moment where you say, like, I'm saved now. I don't have to live my life differently. Like, I don't have to do, I need to be a new self, as Ephesians says. I have to put off the old self and put on the new self. And that is what you're saying, the constant work of preparation. We're never going to arrive at sufficiency. We're going to arrive in heaven one day solely because of what Jesus did for us. But we will become sanctified, we will become more and more righteous by the good things that we do because they show that we're responding in the relationship. Relationships take work, right? Every relationship takes work. Our relationship with Jesus is no different. So we can't just say, God, I give my life to you, I'm going to be baptized, or I'm just going to say that I'm saved, and then our life just doesn't look any different. It has to be part of that preparation, that practice of discipleship, of doing good works, of serving the poor, of acting with charity. But that still is never going to get us there. And I love these two examples you're bringing up, you know, the building of the tower and uh, the sitting down to calculate the, the army, armies in battle. And both of these are biblical examples. They don't really quote what, what examples I thought of, but do you remember early on in Scripture where they're trying to build a tower and it doesn't work out too great? Okay, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. 
all these people who are the descendants of Noah's sons, they start to try and build a tower in Babel, later called Babylon, not the greatest place, where they're trying to reach heaven to make a name for themselves. And do they sit down and calculate the cost of materials and all of that? Well, maybe, maybe not. But the cost in that situation is the cost of pride, the cost of attachment. Have they sat down and calculated the fact that if we do this, what we're saying is we can be like God. And God says, if that's the cost, then I'm going to make you pay it. And he scatters them and confuses their language. He humbles them in their pride. And then the example of the army, I thought of Gideon, the judge, in Judges chapter 7 and 8. I don't know if you know the story of Gideon. Gideon, really cool story. He has this story of like a golden fleece, very kind of Jason and the Argonauts-esque. Uh, well, not the same, but, you know, there's a golden fleece in the Bible, which is pretty cool. But uh, he, there's this story where he's going off into battle, and there's this big, massive army in this valley. And it says in Scripture that it looks like a swarm of locusts is in this valley. There's so many people, and their camels outnumber the sands of the seashore. That's how big this army is. And Gideon has 22,000 troops, and God says... You have too many troops. So just tell some of them it's going to be really hard and send them home. And so 12,000 go home. He's got 10,000 left. He's like, no, you still have too many. Still have too many troops. So go down to the water and tell all the troops to drink. This is such a weird thing that God asked them to do. Go tell them to drink. And all of the soldiers that bend down and lap the water like a dog, you can take them. Send everyone else home. So obviously you're not getting top tier soldiers here, right? I think we get that, Okay. So you get these, what's left after that? 300 men. 300 men go up against this army. And because God is with them, they win. They utterly annihilate and cause this whole massive army to be confused, to be afraid, to surrender. And shortly after that, they come up another army of 15,000 men, and they defeat them as well. Because God is with them. Do you see how these examples kind of point to the tower? When pride, when we are at the top in that throne of our hearts, we're first priority. That doesn't work out. The, calcu the calculating of the cost, it doesn't add up in the end. There's a negative balance. But when God is in that throne, when he is first, and we seek him to glorify him, suddenly 300 soldiers can out overwhelm a valley full of an army. Or small David, the shepherd can overwhelm Goliath, the eight-foot giant. That is what God is saying here. This power that you have when you can let go and totally commit to the Lord, supernatural things can happen in your life. You know the Battle of Lepanto. Can you speak more to that? I think I've heard of that in association with a particular saint, but I can't recall who it is. Do you know who it is? I don't know. I can't remember the saint. That's okay. Yeah. It's like the first instance when the rosary was um, applied. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, Battle of Lepanto, if you want to look at it. Thanks for sharing that. Other questions, thoughts? Or anything else just stand out for you, even though if you don't know why. Ellie? Um, because it is kind of like pointing the direction of an ongoing theme of like, uh, like trying to see like salvation or something, like, like trusting in God, surrendering, taking up your cross. Because we talked about like before how, like, you know, as like Catholics, even though that, uh, yeah, right, we may be like at an advantage because like, oh, we're already like in the right community, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're guaranteed like salvation in heaven because mm -hmm. you could be just stagnant if you're not constantly like you know going to mass and participating like you know taking the time to actually increase your faith um or like showing it out in the community and like evangelizing and then like also it kind of reminded me of like other um like stories in the bible like 
the women who were kind of like waiting for the uh, groom or something, like at the door. Oh, the parable of the ten virgins, yeah. Like, the, the lambs, yeah. and it was like those like women who had carried like extra oil and they were like prepared, and then there was like some that didn't, and then they were like asking for like more oil when that like time came that they were running out. Yeah. Um, and then when they left, you know, they missed their chance because they essentially like weren't prepared. Yeah. So essentially, it's like you never know, like when, like that time comes. Yeah. You know that, like your life is like stripped away. So essentially, you just have to really constantly like prepare yourself. Yeah. Like yeah. I would, to put it simply, like for the Christian, the word tomorrow doesn't exist, and we're addicted to the word tomorrow, right? Like any procrastinators in here, like, tomorrow's your best friend, right? You know, like oh, tomorrow, oh, I'll get that done tomorrow. But for the Christian, tomorrow's never promised, right? And when it comes to maybe not you know small semantic things that we might procrastinate, but we procrastinate bigger spiritual things too. When it comes to those things, we can't say tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to wake up. We don't know if we're going to see the next day. We don't know if Jesus is going to come in His glory. You know, we we have no clue. And so if you find yourself spiritually saying, oh, tomorrow, or next week, or when Lent comes, or for my New Year's resolution, no. Like, why not now? Why not right now today? To do something about it. To start. To put Jesus first. To do that thing that you've been committing to. To say no to that thing that's preventing you from Jesus. To get to confession. To reconcile with God. To overcome whatever sin or, you know, addiction or obstacles getting in the way of you being the disciple God is calling you to be. And me too, for us to, to not put that off and recognize it's not just, oh, tomorrow will be better. No, how about right now? Before I go to bed, what can I do to recommit? How can I reconcile? How can I apologize? How can I become right with the Lord again as best I can and get back on that journey? Get back on that. I'm just imagining Forrest Gump running still, just getting back and running. Keep running. That's why Paul always uses those athletic images, right? In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, you know, I fought the good fight, I finished the race. This idea of endurance, you know, athleticism, it's such a good parallel for discipleship because it takes practice. And in the beginning, practice is hard. If you haven't built the muscle, built the practice, you don't have the proper form, you can get hurt. It can feel really messy. and feel like I'm not getting anywhere. And then all of a sudden, it's working out. And then you're like, all right, I'm going to lift a little more. And then you get hurt again. Like, ooh, I should have done that. I think I tore something. You know, I might be down and out for a little bit. You know, we, that's the peaks and valleys of the spiritual life. But a good athlete knows how to practice well, knows how to change it up, but also knows how to be consistent in such a way that they're taking care of themselves so that they can do whatever they're seeking to do well, as well as possible, better than anyone else in the world. That's all their goal. You know, no athlete goes to the Olympics and like, yeah, I can't wait to get bronze, man. Just like, it'd be so great. Like, they're all looking at gold, right? That's the gold that's always on their mind. All of them. No one goes to the Olympics to get bronze or to get fourth. Can you imagine? You know, like you get to the Olympics, you're like, oh, fourth place. No medal. Just want to be there cheering on for second and third. That'd be great. You know, nobody. We don't want that. And we don't wake up that way with life either. We don't wake up saying, oh, can't wait to have a mediocre life and a mediocre day today. No. That's just not who we are. No matter how old you are, like there's still this desire within us for more. And these readings, as we're approaching, I mean, it's a little ways away, but in, in three months, we'll be at the end of the liturgical year, end of the church calendar, and we'll get into Advent, and we just kind of do this cycle again, year after year. And the readings, they're not meant to scare you. I think, like Rick has shared a few weeks, like, you know, every time I come, I just feel like, man, I'm like not doing enough, you know? Like, you know, these Gospels are hard, and that's not what they're meant to inspire. Yes, they're meant to challenge us. But they're meant to be a consistent reminder of, like, if you want to follow Jesus, it's not just about going through the motions. It is total commitment, total re renouncement of anything else that could possibly get in the way or be a god, an idol for us, and putting Jesus first. And, it's, again, so much easier said than done, obviously. But is it even part of our daily conversation or thought? Or are we just kind of juggling around all these things and kind of, you know, letting the day unfold and tell us what our priority is that day. We have the power said, no, I'm going to wake up early I'm going to spend my time with the Lord. I'm going to let him direct my steps today. And in every moment, in every encounter, every relationship, every task I have to do at school or at work or for my family, I'm going to invite God into that. And I'm going to ask 
How do you want me to be present to this? Or come Holy Spirit, allow this to be something that glorifies you. The simplest of things. It doesn't have to be out loud. Just having that presence of God in your life every day. I, we've been going to the gym since January. And at our gym, you, you're on the treadmill every single week. Every single day you go to the gym. And I hate running. It's the worst. Whoever invented it is awful. And so <laughs> I, I hate running. But I start praying the rosary when I run. And it just kind of like zeroes me in. But what really did it was that one day I was running in the gym and I had empty treadmills on both sides of me. And I was praying the rosary and I just had this image of Mary here and Jesus here. And they were like, let's do this. And they were just like full on, like Naruto running, like as fast as they possibly could, like next to me. And it was just like, they were like, yeah, let's do this. Like race, like, you know, when you're like, have that healthy competition, you know, with each other, it was that. And I was like, this is so cool. So now every time I'm on the treadmill, I'm just imagining like Mary, like, come on, let's go. And like her hair flying back in the wind and like, you know, my wild, sassy Mary, like that's who I see, you know. Mary for me is brave, is a Merida from Brave. If you've seen that Disney movie, that's Mary for me. She's just a Hebrew version of that. Um, you know, that's how I see her. And so it just, it, it brings, bringing them into my life, brings my faith to life in a way where God is present in such a way that he's in the mess. He's present in every moment, even if I'm not on my knees and praying, being perfect, talking about Jesus at every moment. That's what it is, is total detachment. I'm not wasting time looking around, well, what's that person doing? Are they looking at me? Is my muscle looking really good right now? Like, you know, I just know, like, I look gross. Like, and so doesn't matter. Nobody cares. I'm just running with Jesus and Mary right now. And that's what matters. That's what matters. And so when we look at this and we think about what Jesus is asking of us, to really challenge ourselves to say, like, have I ever brought my faith to this level yet? Because I think for me, until like maybe the past few recent years, like my faith was at a place where I loved learning about God. And I loved being in environments where we talked about God. But did I really sit down on a daily basis and ask myself, like, God, are you first in everything? And am I like violently eradicating anything that is not of you from my life? No, I wasn't. I was saying that tomorrow. Later, eventually, when I get a good community or a small group or a spiritual director, maybe, you know, we'll see. But I think I'm pretty good. And that's just not sufficient, according to this. In the same way, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. If we lost it all, would Jesus still be enough? Other questions, thoughts? Yeah. Um, part of the Luke Gospel, it reminds me of being along a pretty fast um, river that's going pretty good mm -hmm. and and that river's flowing to heaven and it's like the Lord's saying to you jump in mm. and go well I just kind of walk on the shoreline I'm going the right way and every now and then when it's easy I jump in mm -hmm. I know I'm looking at the part of land up there that I can get out Yeah, because that time I'm going to be around certain group or I want to do a certain thing and kind of, it's okay I'm not really you know, getting that far off the path, but I'm not, if I jump in and give it all, that means I gotta swim, I gotta stay in that, and it's scary, you know and mm -hmm. I, gotta, I gotta keep going and I know that's the way to go, Yeah. but like you said, in every thought and what you're doing through the day, are you ready to do that, you Yeah. Know? and it's it's it seems, it is easy, as yeah. everybody in this room knows. And, but um, that, that's how I kind of see yeah. how it is for me. Yeah. To co totally commit and go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swim toward the middle where I can't get out. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's like every river rapid story I've ever heard, the raft flips over. I don't know anyone who's ever been river rafting where like the raft didn't flip over, or like someone fell out. Like, it just always happens, you know, because, and you're still in helmets and you're, you're safe, you know, safe, but you're like safer than just jumping in the room. What a good, like, image, because there's so many different scenarios where that would apply. Like, we can jump in the river and then try and swim upstream, right? Do it our way. You know, we can jump in the river, hang onto the rock. Be like, I'm in Jesus. Like, I'm here. I'm going to mass. Not willing to let go, you know? That's why it's more, I think, like skydiving, you know, like... Especially if you're strapped to somebody else. I love watching those videos when, like, the, the instructors know, like, it's time to go. 
and the person that's strapped to them does not want to go, and it doesn't matter. Like the guy's gonna go, and I just love that. Like, or did, was I talking about this with you guys last week? The the video of the guy who was bungee jumping. No, we were talking about this at, at our house with somebody. Um, there's this video of this guy who was bungee jumping, and he's in a lawn chair, like one of those like plastic chairs. And these two guys, and they tip the chair over the edge, and the bungee's attached to the chair. And he's just like, wait, 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 I have to tell you something. I have to tell you something. Wait, 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 don't do it, don't do it. I have to tell you this. It's really important. I have to tell you this. I'm like, what do you have to tell us? So, wait, 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 don't do it. And he does this for like three minutes. Like just like extend, and eventually they're just whatever. And they just like chuck him off the edge, you know? But it's like, like that I think is, is the spiritual life, right? It's just like, okay, I've gotten this far. I'm on the ledge. But then when the moment of like total commitment comes, am I willing to be led off the plane, be swept down river, be pushed off that ledge and just trust like, all right, God, you and your divine bungee cord, you've got me because there's there's no going back from here. This thing's either going to break or I'm going to come out of this okay or this parachute's either not going to deploy or I'm going to hit the ground like I'm supposed to. And that, that's hard because everything in our world and our culture is antithetical to that. It's all about you are your own independent, autonomous individual. You make your decisions. You do what makes you happy. You pursue what you want to pursue. It's all about your dreams, your goals, your aspirations. And the gospel is so not bad. And so when you start to follow Jesus, you get caught in this tension of feeling like, oh, am I missing out? Am I not experiencing the world as I'm supposed to? Have I been left behind by everyone else? Am I not going to have the good life that everyone else seems to be having on Instagram and the highlight reel that they post? That's a hard struggle to overcome. Because we're always comparing. But that's how radical the gospel is so set apart from our ways from our world that is why jesus reminds time after time after time not take up your talents not take up your good looks take up your cross and follow me let go of everything else be willing to say no goodbye see you later to everything else and that's what they did in luke chapter 5 verse 11 when jesus calls the first apostles he says do not be afraid from now on you will be catching men when they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Left everything. Peter had a mother-in-law, which means he had a wife. My wife left her. And you see that in how they depict, you know, the story of Jesus in the, in the show The Chosen and how they, you know, kind of artistically are depicting that. But that cannot have been easy at all by any means. I mean, just to leave your whole business, your whole livelihood, all your friendships, relationships, your family. But that too, like, we have to be willing to say, like, God, you're first. God, you're first. And if all my friends, if even my spouse or my children, they start veering away and they start doing things or saying things that are not the gospel, I'm staying here. I used to say this to young people all the time because they're very socially oriented in youth groups. And I, I, would, I would look at them and I would say, if everyone in this room, myself included, left the church, would you stay? Would you stay? If everyone in your family, in your social group that's Catholic, if everyone at St. Timothy's, including the priests and the whole staff, if everyone left the Catholic Church, would you stay? That's the total commitment. That strips everything else away. Like, you mean no more parties? <laughs> you mean no more Bible study? You mean no more friends? Yeah, but God's still there. Is that enough? Other thoughts, questions? Bruce. I'm still a little troubled by pick up your cross. What was the common way that the people who got crucified got crucified? Did they go up to the same mountain? Did they go someplace else? Did they drag a cross with them when they went? What do we know about how Rome did their dirty work? So I would say it wasn't uncommon that they were beaten in some way beforehand. Um, but Jesus had the maximum amount of corporal punishment that was allowed by law before he was crucified. So his was pretty, like the most brutal, gruesome version of crucifixion you could possibly get if, there, if you want to break it to degrees. I mean, even if you got the best version, it was still terrible. Like, you know, the worst possible thing to ever happen. Um, a lot of, I think, historical uh, accounts say that a lot of the, uh, the, the crosses or the crucified bodies would be moved to the path where people would come into Jerusalem as an example. 
you know, during pilgrimages and feast days, like if you, like I was saying before, if you fall out of line, like this is going to happen to you. It was a, a, a scare tactic to conform to whatever the status quo was, to the law, to the Roman rule. Um, the Mount, Mount Calvary, uh, it's not a big, massive mountain, you know, but it is a mount kind of right outside Jerusalem. It's visible. People could see it. Um, you know, people were aware of what was happening and everything that happened to Jesus happened in the city during a pilgrimage feast. So there were tons, thousands of people there to witness it. So it also was kind of a public spectacle. Um, the nails that were driven in, uh, we, we don't know exactly because of so many artistic depictions, whether it was through both feet, one through each foot, uh, through the hand or the wrist, but it was usually somewhere in this area, like through the, the wrist tendon. If you put a, a stake through someone's hand, it would... you. I mean, it's a little gruesome, but you would probably just rip off. And that couldn't hold up your body weight. But if you put it through this tendon with all the bones and ligaments there, right through the radius and the ulna, like that's enough to hold you up. And people who were crucified, um, they would die typically from asphyxiation because that being in that position, uh, your arms needing to be pulled apart would both be dislocated and you would have so much blood loss and so much trauma in your body that you would um, be suffering from some kind of edema, pleural effusion, fluid would fill up your lungs and start to come around your heart, and you would die slowly of drowning on your own uh, bodily fluid. And to breathe, you would have to push yourself up on the stake that was through one or both of your ankles to just take a breath and then relax back down. And Jesus did that for hours. And so it was, like I said, Rome perfected this. That's why we have the word excruciating, comes from the word crucifixion. That's where it comes from. It's because it became an example of the worst possible way to die. They had perfected it. So historically, that's what happened. Biologically, that is a lot what would have happened to Jesus and what would have been a common experience for a lot of people who were crucified. Yeah. Yes? Actually, one more thing. Um, like the word renounce just reminds me of like when we do our... Um, Baptismal right renewal like yeah. every year when we like say, Do you renounce Do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his empty promises? Yeah. Do you say I believe? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because in order to say yes, you first have to say no to something else. And we like to be yes people, right? We like to say yes to everything. Yeah, I'll go to church and yeah, I'll do really great at my job and yeah, I'll be the best parent and spouse I can be. Yes, 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 yes. And we don't have the time, energy, capacity, ability to do all of that. Well, we don't. You know, and then most days I'm like, my report cards made straight C's on a good day, probably in a lot of those different areas, you know. And, and there's no way it's going to get any better than that without God. And it's only that good because of God. But it's a good point that what Jesus is calling us to here is really just the first step. What he's saying here is just say, say no to everything else so you can say yes to the right thing. And then the whole rest of the New Testament is letters written to these communities of once you've said yes to the right thing, now, how do you do that in the mess of life when all these other things start competing for your attention again? All these other addictions, sins, temptations, cultural realities, when all of that comes back into play, how do you continue to be faithful in doing the good works that have to be part of your response of faith? So it's important reminder that as hard as this sounds, this is just the beginning. But once we get this right, just like the foundation that's laid here, if we lay the right foundation, the building will be strong. Even if it's not a great building, you know, even if it's just like a weird looking shack, if you have a, a really firm foundation, it will be stable. But if we don't renounce the things we need to renounce, if we don't say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things, then it's going to be shaky no matter how good it looks as we go, no matter what faithful practices we develop along the way. If we're not renouncing the things that lead us away from God and allowing ourselves to totally follow him, commit to him seek him as our ultimate fulfillment, then it, it, it's going to get messy and complicated and difficult, and we're going to constantly fall and turn away. And praise God for his mercy. He always comes after us. He always is willing to forgive. But it's probably going to make faith seem so much more exhausting, impossible, and difficult if we don't do this first. Yeah? So I suppose then the act of receiving communion is a statement of reliance. We can't, we can't Live without it, we can't live without God. Yep. So, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the, the, the readings kind of talk about what we do and don't do, but it just kind of came to me that the, the communion is actually saying we can't 
need this. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's food. You know, spiritual food, because we, we all know if you don't eat, you die. You know, but if we don't eat spiritual food either, we spiritually suffer, we spiritually die. And it can feel like we're in total despair, totally separated from God, no hope, no purpose, very difficult to connect to him. That's why we need the, the Eucharist and the sacraments. That's, that's why they're so simple. They're made with such like profoundly simple things. But think about both those things, bread and wine. This is, we'll end with this. Think about taking up your cross and the suffering that that endured. What does it take to make bread? Crushing wheat. What does it take to make, to make wine? Crushing grapes. What did Jesus do for us? He was crushed, as the New Testament says, for our iniquities, for our sins. It's a constant reminder when we're at Mass that we are receiving the very act of Jesus' sacrifice. That is what sustains us. That is what gives us the power to say yes and to renounce the things that draw us away from him. We can't do it on our own. But when we can begin to make a habit of that, inspired, fulfilled by the Holy Spirit, by his grace that's present in the sacraments, then it's possible. Then it's possible. But if we go through life thinking we can do it on our own, and we have that Western autonomous individualism, like manifest destiny, I can go achieve this on my own and get to heaven by my own bootstraps, oh man, you're going to crash and burn hard, brother. Like, that's just, that's just how it is. And I've been there, and I constantly battle it each day. We all do. It's our pride. Like, I can figure this out. I can control. Letting go. Detaching. Not hating things in a negative way, but recognizing nothing has that place in my life and in my heart that solely is for God. Let's pray. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we know that, as St. Augustine says, that we can fall into the trap of loving creature and forgetting creator. So help us never to forget who you are, the power you have, and what you've done for us. That we cannot get through this life without you. We don't even have life without you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize the things that get in the way of our pursuit of ultimate fulfillment, love, belonging, truth, goodness, and beauty, that all rests and resides in you and in you alone. And in the ways that we are seeking that elsewhere, give us clarity, challenges to turn away from sin, to turn away from things that do not glorify you, that do not help us become the people you've called us to be. And really ask ourselves, if we have made this total commitment to you, and if we have not, to express that openly, out loud, in prayer to you. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I claim what you did for me on the cross to merit my salvation. I claim that for myself. And I wish to respond in faith with the gift of my life and return to you. In good works, in faith, in love, and hope. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it. And as we hear this word proclaimed again this Sunday, allow it to inspire us anew. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.